Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are tuning in. Thank you so much for joining me this morning or this evening or this afternoon <laughs> for the next episode of A Voice from the Ever Change Meditation Program. And this will be a Q&A session. I did get several questions um, uh, this week, which was great. Actually, uh, over the past couple of weeks, I got a stack of questions. So thank you for that. And if you do have any uh, more questions, uh, do uh, send those along. I'm happy to receive those. I, I actually love getting them. It allows me to uh, know, uh, firstly, what I should talk about here. <laughs> and then also, uh, it allows me to uh, see how I'm connecting with people. And so I find that to be uh, quite informative and important. Now, before I get on to the questions, uh, I do have a few announcements uh, as usual uh, at the beginning here. And I like to do those right at the beginning as a way of allowing people to uh, show up to the live session late if they're uh, coming in late. Uh, so all welcome at any point during the session. And if you're catching this on video, then you'll see and hear the whole thing if it's on podcast, however you're getting it. Anyway, the announcements. Uh, coming up this Saturday, uh, I'm launching a Such Sweet Thunder meditation retreat online. Uh, some of you have already signed up for that, so I appreciate that. And that sign up will close in about 24 hours from now uh, because I have to get everything organized uh, for the amount of people coming and send out the Zoom links and everything like that. Uh, so again, October 17th uh, to November 14th. Uh, this is in uh, the States time. So it's actually starting on the 18th here in Asia. Uh, but I, I like to go with the Pacific Coast time uh, for now. Uh, so Wednesday and Saturday at 7 p.m. Pacific Coast time. Uh, and we'll be meeting then twice a week uh, for 90 minutes a session. Uh, the first session, Saturday sessions, will probably be mostly dedicated to talking, introducing uh, the next uh, type of meditation practice, and so forth, kind of a book study. Uh, we will do some meditation there as well, uh, but it will be mostly a chance for you to connect with me to ask any questions and, and so forth. And then the Wednesday, session will be primarily a guided meditation practice. Uh, there will be some chance for discussion there as well. So again, every Wednesday and Saturday, or starting on this Saturday, October 17th, running to November 14th. Now, if you're hesitant to sign up for this because you feel you might miss a couple of sessions, they will all be recorded. Uh, and so, I can send you a link to those recordings. Now, the recordings won't be public. Uh, it's a way of kind of allowing the retreat to be as exclusive as I would like it to be. Um, I'm going to uh, record the sessions, but only make those available for people who have registered for the Such Sweet Thunder meditation program or the retreat program. Now, if you'd like to go ahead and sign up, you can find all of that on my website, uh, suchsweetthunder.org, or you can go to contemplativelight.com. I am offering this retreat in conjunction with Contemplative Light. 
so they have all of the information and links on their website as well. And definitely, if you haven't seen Contemplative Light's website, uh, it's a wonderful website. Uh, a lot of healing modalities available there, so do go check that out. Also would like to announce that I am currently accepting applications for one-on-one -on -one studies. So if you're interested in starting a meditation practice and to uh, connect with a teacher to get started, I see people uh, from all experience levels. So I welcome beginners. In fact, I, I'm currently uh, working with several beginners in their meditation practice, getting them started and on the path. And I'm working with advanced meditators as well. So if you currently have a meditation practice and you'd like to go deeper into that practice, connecting with a teacher one-on-one -on -one can be a really great way to do that. Uh, now, when I meet with people one-on-one, -on -one, I tailor the sessions according to that person's needs, according to what's arising in that person's practice. I can adjust and make uh, corrections to the imbalances, which can and often do arise in a meditation practice. So having that one-on-one -on -one connection, uh, if you do uh, desire to go deeper into a meditation practice, that one-on-one -on -one connection is really imperative uh, for that process. So I am available, accepting applications. Again, uh, visit my website, www.suchsweetthunder.org, and click on the online studies page. And that'll uh, give you all of the information you need to get started uh, with a one-on-one -on -one practice. In addition to all of that, a couple of more announcements. Uh, I've been invited uh, by Zara Windy and Michael Doherty uh, to take part in a men's circle discussion uh, this coming Saturday, October 17th at 8 p.m. That's Philippine time uh, because their center is located in the Philippines. Uh, 7 p.m. in Thailand, where I am, and 8 a.m. on the East Coast of America. So adjust your uh, clocks accordingly. Uh, if you'd like to catch us, we'll be doing a, a really informative and evocative discussion on healing trauma. Uh, and I imagine we'll be talking about mindfulness and, and uh, meditation modalities that are often used uh, as a trauma healing modality or device. Uh, this is a really important topic this, these days. There's, well, a lot of worldwide trauma happening uh, as uh, the current events unfold across the globe. Uh, and so healing trauma, uh, at least for me, I, it's something I've become very passionate about uh, using meditation as a healing modality for trauma. I myself uh, had post-traumatic stress disorder uh, for several years after uh, witnessing September 11th in New York City uh, and was able to recover uh, from those uh, symptoms of PTSD through mindfulness practice, through love and kindness practice. So I know firsthand how effective uh, these practices can be. One more announcement, I've been invited uh, to team up with a wonderful insight meditation teacher uh, also located in the Philippines. Her name is Aimee Contreras. Uh, she's the uh, Mindfulness Asia Institute in the Philippines. 
uh, we are hosting a day-long intensive focusing on the practices of impermanence. So if you've been uh, receiving benefit from the last month of impermanence uh, meditation offerings that I've been giving here on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube, uh, you won't want to miss a long intensive. We're going to go uh, really deep into the practices of impermanence, embracing impermanence uh, for the day running uh, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. on November 22nd. So mark your calendar for that. Uh, and that is uh, Philippine time, I believe. But I'll be making more announcements and posting on the website and Facebook about the times, exact times. But it will be November 22nd. Uh, it's going to be a, a really um, profound day of impermanence practice. Aimee is a wonderful insight teacher. Uh, she's graduated from UCLA uh, with mindfulness practice and uh, has uh, a great deal of background in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, Vipassana meditation, and so forth. Uh, so don't miss that one. Okay, that's all the announcements. <laughs> uh, and so we can get started into the Q&A session. Now, when I was putting uh, today's program together, I was going through some of the questions and I realized that there's kind of, you know, answers to these questions in my mind. I was drawing a lot from the Buddhist traditions. Now, my training is primarily in uh, Buddhist meditation or contemplative, contemplative traditions. So when I talk about the Buddha or Buddhism, I'm not promoting any particular faith, belief, or religion. I will be drawing on some of the early writings of Buddhism today as a part of this program, but again, I'm not doing that as a way of promoting any religion. I do that because that's where my training is, that's my comfort zone, but I am quite confident that these same teachings or similar teachings are found in most of the world religions, if not all of the world religions. So uh, there you go. I just wanted to put that disclaimer up front there because I don't want to turn anyone off uh, by talking about Buddhism, thinking that uh, they're being preached to. I'm not preaching. Again, I'm just drawing from my comfort zone. Uh, I like to bring the teachings of the Buddha and Buddhism uh, out in a secular way to make them accessible uh, for people who walk any path. These teachings can be practiced uh, by Catholics, by Jews, by people who practice Kabbalah, uh, by people who worship Mother Gaia. Any religion, any walk of life, atheism, agnosticism, and so forth. So that's my disclaimer. <laughs> And so here is the question that I'm going to use today. Now I've chosen this question because it's very broad and it allows me to move from topic to topic addressing some of the other questions that I've received as well. So if this isn't the question you sent in, stay tuned. You might uh, have your question answered uh, in that conversational kind of way as I weave uh, through the episode. 
So this uh, viewer wrote in, he says, you, you have done, he or she, I'm not sure, uh, you have done a lot of speaking lately about letting go of the self. Is this similar to the philosophy of nihilism, the idea that there is no self? And so this is quite interesting. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, I would be doing some reading from the Buddhists. And so when I saw this question, it reminded me of a passage uh, that's quite common in, uh, well, commonly quoted by many teachers. And so I will join the ranks here and, and quote this uh, passage here. This is from, I believe it's from the Samyutta Nikaya. It's one of the Nikayas. It's one of the earliest writings of Buddhism. This is an exchange uh, from a wandering mendicant named Vachigota uh, and uh, Gotama Buddha. Uh, it's a kind of a Q&A session actually, so that, that works well here. <laughs> Vachigota says, how is it, venerable Gotama? Does the self exist? The Buddha remained silent. Then how is it, Venerable Gotama? Does the self not exist? The Buddha again remained silent. Eventually the wanderer Vajigyota got up from his seat and went away. The Buddha then turned to his attendant and said, if I had answered the self exists, that would have encouraged eternalism. And if I had answered, the self does not exist, that would have encouraged nihilism. That's the end of the passage there. So, some might have, you know, some might think, you know, they read that, or they hear it on a talk. They think, well, the Buddha was obviously just dodging the question. He just didn't want to answer the question, so he remained silent. The more I study, the more I practice meditation and mindfulness, the more I recognize that actually the silence was the answer to that question. And this answer is the middle way, the silent middle way. And if you're familiar with philosophy, Aristotle talked about the middle way, very similar to the Buddhist idea of the middle way. He called it the unspoken middle. And so this is the tricky, tricky idea or the tricky uh, problem of teaching about the middle way. Because as soon as you define a middle way, it has the danger of becoming an extreme, or it has the danger of becoming one side of a pair. So self, not self, right? And so if you say uh, there is not self, that's actually enforcing the idea of self because all of our experience, all human experience arises in terms of opposites. So if you define any particular experience, you're also allowing that opposite to arise. You say, 
this room is hot, well, this room is hot only in comparison to cold. If you say, I'm feeling comfortable, that comfort is only recognizable against a backdrop of discomfort. And so remaining silent, that silence is the middle way, letting go of the self. That's not denying a self, but it's not encouraging a self either. So it's not that the self doesn't exist, but it, the teachings on impermanence, the teachings on non-self, bring us to the realization that the self is a process. It's an experience. And so we often take that experience to be something solid and fixed and permanent, leading to that extreme, leading to that eternalism, whether we define it as that or we just think that that's the, the natural course of existence, that I am this solid, fixed entity. We, we find our home there. And it's not just there, it's not just in the self that we find a home. We think this residence is going to give us a solid, fixed, safe, permanent place to abide. It doesn't. And when that self starts to change in some way, it either gives rise to suffering through that change. We don't want that. I don't want that to happen. This can't be happening to me, whether it's aging or sickness or death or loss of a job, uh, loss of uh, any sort of identification, uh, we suffer, we push away from that. Or conversely, if we feel the, that abode, that identification getting stronger, maybe you get a promotion, you get a raise, uh, you get stronger physically, going go to the gym uh, and things like that, if you identify with that process, it's reinforcing that suffering. You start clinging to that. It becomes an, another extreme. I want the new promotion. I want the next job. I want to be able to lift 20 pounds heavier. I want to look uh, stronger and so forth. That clinging, that grasping, again, leading to suffering. And so this is why that silence that we cultivate in meditation, that stillness, is so important. Because in that stillness, there's no identification. We start very comfortable with not having a safe abode. In fact, that ever-changing reality becomes our safe abode. But we can't define it as that because as soon as we define a safe place, even if we say this ever-changing field is my safe abode, 
that means there's some opposite, there's some sense of non-safety somewhere, you see? And that's how we step out of that middle way and we move to one extreme. So it's very important to allow that stillness, to allow that silence in between, to allow that silence to be without defining it. Because as soon as we define it, we fall into a this versus that, an up versus down, a safe abode versus a not safe abode. So this is what's meant in the contemplative traditions, going forth from home to homelessness. Now, in many early uh, traditions, uh, that was considered quite literal. That you were actually, if you were really to embrace the teachings of Buddhism or Hinduism, for example, uh, you had to leave home, put on a robe, and become a, a monastic. But the symbols, uh, the symbolism of that path, is what's important. The Buddha left his home. He left, if you know the story of the Buddha, uh, he was born a prince, very wealthy, and when he turned 29, he left the palace and gave up all of his belongings and put on a robe and shaved his head and so forth. That's symbolic of leaving our places of safety leaving our identifications behind. So I just want to read here another passage from the early texts of Buddhism. And I said, I mentioned I would be doing a lot of that today. So again, I'm not pushing any particular religion or faith or practice, um, but I just uh, find a lot of wisdom here. And this is my background, so. This is the Buddha himself, his words, recollecting uh, the days after his enlightenment. And here he's trying to formulate his awakening experience into a teaching. The Buddha says, The truth that I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle and sensed by the wise, but people love their place. They delight, revel, and love in their place. It will be hard for people who delight, love, and revel in their place to see this ground. The this conditionality, conditioned arising, and also hard to see this ground, the stilling of inclination, the relinquishing of bias, the fading away of reactivity, desirelessness, ceasing nirvana. He goes on, he says, were I to teach this truth, others would not understand me. And that would be both tiring and vexing for me. 
People who are colored with attachment, covered by darkness, will not see what goes against the stream. Subtle, deep, hard to see and fine. Upon thinking this over, I am inclined to inaction. So he says a lot there in just a page and a half. And I, I really love the humanness here. He's this enlightened being. He's had this awakening experience. He is the Buddha. Yet he's still concerned that if he tries to teach, it's so radical, this teaching that he's formulating, that people won't understand him. So his first instinct was not to teach. His first instinct, in fact, was to uh, become a hermit and live out the rest of his days uh, rolling in the ecstasy of nirvana. Now, luckily for us, he changed his mind. But here he's reflecting. He says this goes against the stream, the stream of our habitual tendencies to, to grasp and uh, desire permanency in a world that is constantly ever-changing. This is why those practices on impermanence are so important. So we're grasping, looking, seeking, desiring uh, a ground that is fixed, that gives us a sense of stability. Now, if this coronavirus pandemic and the current political divisions across the globe, uh, if they're showing us anything, it's showing us how impermanent our fixed, supposedly fixed, permanent, solid places are. That there is solid, fixed ground, that it's all very, very fragile and very tentative. Now that might sound like bad news, but actually it's good news. Because when we really embrace impermanence, we stop investing our energy into impermanent things. We stop looking for happiness, for lasting happiness. We stop looking for lasting safety in places where it can't be found. That's quite important because then all of that energy that we had used in those pursuits become available for our own practice of mindfulness, for our own practice of loving kindness. So this idea of letting go of our place, the Buddha says, people aren't gonna understand this because they delight and revel and love their place. Those are our identifications. Now my place is I'm, I'm Chris, I'm a teacher, I'm a poet, I'm a writer, I'm a traveler, I love cats, I, I love Thai food. <laughs> These are all my identifications, some common identifications, uh, gender identifications, very common, uh, nationality, also very common, political party, sports affiliation, religion, ideology, philosophy. These are all identifications. These are all lines on the map. 
They're not the territory. They're the map. Now, a map can be very useful, be very helpful when we're trying to find our way. The problem is, is that we cling to the map and we miss the territory. We fall in love with the map and we are blinded to the territory. The Buddha said we have to let the map go and experience life in its fullest. So going forth from home to homelessness, that's symbolic of going forth from the map to the territory, letting go of the identifications one by one. That reminds me of this story um, that I've been told by a couple of different teachers. This uh, comes from, oh, it's a story about uh, the Korean Zen master, Sun Sing Nim. Now, Sun Sing Nim was around, he was alive during the 20th century. And he was one of the uh, pioneers of Zen Buddhism, uh, bringing uh, Zen practice to America in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Now, Susing Nim had a center in Rhode Island, and he was giving a talk there at the center. And this was, I think, in the late 70s. Now, there was a lot of uh, uh, civil rights movements happening in the late 60s, throughout the 70s, and into the 80s, and happening now today, uh, even stronger, perhaps. Uh, but at this time, uh, there was a lot of um, rights for a gender equality movement. Uh, and so that was a hot topic, women's rights. And some of the traditions, unfortunately, in, in some of the traditions in Southeast Asia, it is thought that women uh, can't be enlightened. I don't want to get into that too much, but that's part of the dogma that has become entrenched in some of the Buddhist countries, that uh, a nun would have to practice and be reincarnated uh, into a male, uh, and then become a, uh, an advanced monk as a male, and then enter into nirvana after they die. Uh, I don't subscribe to that point of view. I think nirvana, enlightenment, awakening is available right here, right now, in this very moment for everyone. Uh, and so anyway, I die. I digress. <laughs> so Su Sing Nim is giving this talk. This, and I just wanted to set the stage there, as this is in the height of a very tense moment in American history. Uh, and uh, there's a young lady in the in the audience, and and he, uh, she asks Su Sing Nim, "Do you think it's possible uh, for women to become enlightened?" And Sun Sing Nim says, no. And of course, you know, a big hush spreads across the crowd and people are, you know, started, you know, you know, saying rumbling, rumbling, rumbling across the audience. You can imagine people are getting angry. Sun Sing Nim, but at the same time, neither can a man become enlightened. Because enlightenment knows no gender. Divinity 
doesn't know feminine or masculine. And if somebody is identified with being a woman attaining enlightenment, well, that might keep them at enlightenment's door, so to speak. They might get to the door of enlightenment, but they won't be able to enter that state of nirvana as long as they're attached to being a woman, to being a man, to being a musician, to being a poet, to being a Buddhist, to being a Taoist. If we're holding on to any aspect of human experience, we're still reading the map. And the map can get us close to the door but we can't get in the door as long as we're holding that mat. Now, I'm talking in metaphors a bit and speaking poetically a bit, but I think we need to bring it down to really into uh, accessible terms. These teachings are all about releasing ourself from suffering. In fact, again, to re refer to the Buddha, when the Buddha was asked what he taught, and he often was asked what he taught, he would often reply, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So all of these teachings, whether it's the Buddha or Sun Sing Nim, or Zen Master Hui Neng, or the great Nagarjuna, or the Sufi poet Rumi, or Jesus Christ, or Allah. All of these are different versions of a map which is trying to bring us to the end of suffering. And we can see that that map gets horribly distorted sometimes. But if we come back and really look at the map, we can see, well, yeah, that's, that's where this map is trying to lead us. The end of suffering isn't a permanent state. It's not a place where one resides. The end of suffering is more of a way of being in the world. It's a way of responding to what's arising in any given moment. With loving kindness, with compassion, with equanimity, with joy, with wisdom. That's the end of suffering. And it happens moment by moment. It's not an accomplishment that one can master. Now we cultivate the skills which allow us to meet the present moment in that way, in that skillful way. And that's done through meditation, through study, through practice, and so forth. 
So I have another reading here. I want to read Rumi. I mentioned Rumi, the great Sufi poet. All right, it's here. <laughs> and here, Rumi, great, beautiful poetry. Uh, walking the reader through the process of disidentification, the process of moving from home to homelessness. Not Christian or Jew or Muslim, not Hindu, Buddhist, Sufi or Zen, not out of the ocean nor up from the ground, not neutral, natural or ethereal, not composed of elements at all. I do not exist. I am not an entity of this world or the next. I did not descend from Adam and Eve or any origin story. My place is placeless, a trace in the traceless. Neither body or soul, I belong to the beloved. I have seen the two worlds as one, and that one I call to know. The first and last, outer and inner, only this breath-breathing human being. Beautiful. So you can see he's going through, dropping his identifications, starts, then he starts, then he moves from religion to uh, origin stories, various origin stories that would have been common uh, in Rumi's time in the 1300s. Then he just says point blank, I do not exist. I am not an entity in this world or the next. Now, you might think that's encouraging nihilism, right? But he keeps referring to the I. So that's the middle ground. He says, I do not exist. But then he comes back, solidifying. So walking, I do not exist. That's one extreme then I am not an entity of this world. I did not descend from Adam and Eve and so forth. So moving back and forth, trying to use language, poetry, to describe the unspoken middle, to describe what can't be described. He says, I have seen these two worlds as one. Again, pointing at that middle ground. Beautiful. And so that leads me to loving kindness. I got some questions on loving kindness. So I'm gonna bridge that over by reading the last, I think four lines of the Metta Sutta. Metta is the Sanskrit word or Pali word for loving kindness. And I have it here, right. Okay, the end of the Metta Sutta, and I'll read the whole 
Metta Sutta, but I just want to read the end here because this is a good segue. He says, pure-hearted one, this is the Buddha speaking, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision from all, oh, I'm sorry, let me go back one more line. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desire, is freed from repetitive existence, or freed from the round of suffering. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one is freed from suffering. So here, too, he's referring to the idea that there's no view that's worth residing in. Because any view, any philosophy, any idea, any belief system, any one thing that we attach to leads to suffering because inevitably the opposite will arise okay now as a way of wrapping up today's talk i do want to read the entire metta sutta it's just it's very short it's just a couple of pages it's one of my favorite writings of all time it's one of the beautiful beautiful uh works uh, of poetry that I've ever come across. Uh, and now this is the Buddha here talking to a few of his students, uh, telling them how one should practice loving-kindness. Now I've done an exhaustive <laughs> month-long series on loving-kindness practice uh, that's all available on my website it's all available on YouTube, on Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, so if you're really interested in embarking on a journey of loving-kindness, uh, I recommend uh, checking out those videos um, and so forth. Uh, if you have any questions about loving-kindness practice, please do feel free uh, to send those questions or any questions along through Messenger or at the bottom of the, the screen below the video here, and I'll get to the Q&A at the next episode. Here I'm closing out uh, today's offering just by reading the Metta Sutta. The Buddha said, this is what should be done. By those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace, let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duty, frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove wishing. In gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they be weak or strong, omitting none, 
the great or the mighty, the medium, the short, the small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading through the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drugs. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desire, is freed from the round of suffering. By not holding to fixed views, we can extend loving kindness to everyone, no matter who they are. When we let go of our dogma and recognize the spirit beyond the ideology, and it's not lost on me that I'm giving this teaching Currently, there's a presidential town hall meeting on both sides, holding on to fixed views. How powerful would it be for one of them to extend loving kindness to the other, even if only for a moment. May all beings be at ease, not holding on to fixed views. <laughs>